Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. Thank you, as always, for joining. This episode features Arnaud Kosara of Comgest. He is joined by one of Comgest PM's, Rick Mercado. Rick and Arnaud join in this episode to discuss their philosophy of investing. I would describe it as quality growth. I enjoyed speaking to them because I'm becoming pretty interested in you know, what it's like to own businesses for the long term. And I think that their views on culture is really interesting. I think that their views on quality and how they define it is very interesting. The, the longer you know, I've been able to do this, I've just appreciated being able to speak to so many different people with so many different investing philosophies. And this is yet another conversation that I enjoyed very much. I hope you will as well. One thing that I'm proud of that this podcast features is diversity of thought. And I uh, was really, really glad that some of uh, our European fan of the business brew reached out and pitched Comgest and Arnaud as a potential guest. And I'm hopeful that this adds to the overall catalog and your learning experience. So thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the episode. This episode is sponsored by Stratosphere.io. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E dot I-O. Stratosphere.io is a web-based terminal that has financial data, KPIs, links to filings, hedge fund letters, and much more. I like the interface. I think my man Braden is a good dude. He is constantly iterating. He's released a couple new releases, which I like a lot. The UI is improving. Not that it had far to go, but I appreciate what he's doing. And... You know, he takes data quality super seriously. Everything is triple checked for accuracy. I have enjoyed doing comparative analysis on different companies within the product. Stratosphere saves users like myself time and enables easy comparisons between companies and offers company specific metrics such as subscriber counts, number of locations, etc. If you are using the product and happen to stumble upon a company that doesn't have KPIs, ping my man Braden and his team. They are quick, they are responsive, they will fix the issue. Head on over to stratosphere.io for a free trial. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E dot I-O for a free trial. And should you want to sign up for a paid offering, please use the promo code BREW, B-R-E-W, for 15% off. As for disclosures, Comgest and its affiliates may own positions in the companies discussed. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risks, including the loss of capital. And as always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. All right, enjoy the show. So ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to be joined by Rick Mercado and Arnaud Kosara today. Um... A European-focused uh, episode, and I don't know, potentially we'll get into emerging markets, but I know definitely Europe. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for joining. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Comgest and the investment philosophy? I, in particular, I enjoyed, I was reading your 30 years of Comgest and your comments on culture and how uh, your culture has helped Comgest get through tough times or, or tough markets, not tough times. I'd be, I'd be interested in starting there, if you don't mind. 
Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, yeah, we, we, we strongly believe in uh, culture as a strong competitive advantage and certainly a, a durable competitive advantage when it comes to the companies we're investing in. And it's the same for uh, us, Comgest, as a company. I mean, we strongly believe that culture is uh, one of the most essential thing, uh, one of the most durable thing um, that will uh, shape uh, our future. So uh, the way it started at Comgest is that uh, we were created by two guys who had um, been working in the banking business before. And when they created Comgest, they suddenly didn't want to replicate what they had known in the banking business, which was very vertical organization with uh, um, everything that goes with it. It can be the politics, can be a lack of entrepreneurship, etc., etc. So the, the way it was built from the start by the, those two gentlemen, uh, Vedish von Gardeke and Jean-François Canton, was to have a very flat structure uh, where everybody could feel totally empowered uh, thanks to one thing that is a very key to our organization, which is a broad partnership. That means that every year, uh, almost all employees buy with their own money shared into the company. It takes them 10, 15 years of um, long and uh, heavy sacrifice, financial sacrifice, to build a sizable stake in the company. But the great thing about that is that um, they... Uh, Live and breathe and, and and bleed congest, you know. Uh, and it's it's a way uh, for us to align perfectly uh, who we are, our structure, with what we do, which is investing uh, for the long run uh, in uh, quality companies uh, for our clients on behalf of our clients. Uh, it's, a, it's a great alignment because uh, it incentivizes us to look long term. I mean, we invest in companies in great quality companies. Uh, for the next five, the next 10, the next 20 years, in the same way we invest uh, our own money in, into the shell of, uh, of our company. Uh, it's also a great way to uh, limit the risk taking because, of course, you wouldn't do anything foolish if it's your own money. And last but not least, of course, it, it creates a great collegial uh, environment, uh, atmosphere within Comgest. And I think it was very visionary back then in the 1980s for one of the founder who's a, a German guy called Vedish von Gardeker and who's kind of a very anarchist <laughs> deep down inside. He really believed in the, in the people, in the empire of the people and not no God, no master type of, uh, uh, you know, um, attitude. And uh, that's how um, this whole idea about Comgest broad partnership grew up. Nowadays, we are 210 people and 180 are owning shares. Uh, they feel like partners, they don't feel like employees. So they, that means they, they, they look not only at their, their little scope of their job, but far beyond that. Uh, and they talk to each other as partners. And I think, I mean, Rick has been with us for several years now. Uh, he's still in the, in the investment phase. So I think, I'm sure he can testify about, uh, about the benefits and also the, the effort. How do you incentivize and facilitate conversations among colleagues in the organization without uh like like arno you've been there since 1996 i believe right how do you how do you avoid um an authority like like taking on an authority figure and and incentivizing people to tell the truth or or their beliefs of the truth and have honest conversations to get to the most objective facts uh, as opposed to have authority run through the organization. Cause now you're large enough. I would think, you know, it's something that you have to fight a little bit, but that's a secret recipe for success. I mean, to encourage open 
debates that sometimes are tough debates. Six months ago, uh, we asked one of the founders who is retired now is 80 to give a, a speech to our, our, our people. And he said, uh, there are three recipes to fight against the ABC of decay, which is a uh, ABC means uh, arrogance, bureaucracy and complacency. And, and the, one of the three advice was speak up your mind. I mean, sp sp speak up. And everything we do, we are trying to, in, in a way we are, we are uh, or organizing the life of Comgest is to offer a lot of counter power within Comgest to as many people as possible. So it's not perfect. I mean, we're always working on something, but uh, we have certainly a lot of rituals around um, moments and places where we ask people to tell what they think and they need to be as transparent as possible. Uh, so we, we have a culture of transparency. Uh, it works. I mean, of course, it when we were 10, it doesn't work the same way as nowadays when we are 210. Uh, but still, we, we, we strongly believe in that. We have, for example, our town hall meeting twice a month called the Tuesday meeting, which is a ritual of this uh, uh, culture of ours, where for one hour, um, we are uh, 150 to 200 around a Zoom call uh, from various places in the world. We are on 10 different locations, four different continents, and everybody is invited to I mean, to raise questions, to engage into debate. And same holds true within each investment team. We have 50 investment professionals. Rick is uh, one of the key leaders in uh, global equity, and he is within the team of six. And um, yes, we we all know that it's very important when it comes to taking investment decision to have all the input on the table, to have zero ego involved into the debates, and to treat uh, things as factually as possible. Rick, you want to add something maybe or? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really good point. Um, culture is one of those phenomenons that everyone talks about and yet it's very hard to make it tangible. Um, when I joined Comgest, I actually did 13 meetings. It was very much a, a two-way process, but there was a great emphasis on making sure that philosophically and the way that you operated was really well aligned. Um, and so I would say that, you know, living through that and making sure that everyone actually abides by that, it's very important from Arno to, you know, support staff, everyone's quite willing to be open. You extrapolate that into the shareholder structure. And what you find is that you have this very interesting culture where on that Tuesday meeting, for example, sometimes you have um, you know, what would typically be seen as super important issues like shareholder structure, where are we going as a business in the next 5, 10, 15 years coming up? And other times, you know, an individual's um, concerns will come up. So I remember in one of my very first meetings at Comgest at that Tuesday town hall, someone put their hand up and said, I really would like to stop us using for, uh, plastic bottles. And it just showed that there was this openness from everyone across regions, across different levels where they were able to open up and speak their minds uh, without fear of, you know, taking up time or, or not being important and so on. I, uh, you know, I have like the Buffett uh, quote of I'm, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman and I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor like ringing in my head. And, hmm. you know, there's... Uh, in your letters, you emphasize the importance of culture. And I'm I'm curious whether or not, you know, how building the culture at Com Comgest has helped uh, you analyze company cultures or how, you know, analyzing company cultures has helped you uh, build the, the culture at Comgest and just kind of 
how that how that intersection occurs and then and then the sort of deeper question within the conversation is how do you assess investment uh, opportunities cultures from the outside looking you know in Yes, that's true that uh, since uh, day one, we've been long-term investors. And as a result, we've been paying a lot of attention to how, how culture is shaped within the, every, every company, every business we, we analyze. And that has helped us also uh, for, for our own culture and to know how to uh, maintain and adapt this culture to various uh, phases of our development. Um, suddenly, having uh, different ways to appraise a culture is very important. Culture is, a, is about community. It's like families, it's like villages or clubs. Uh, they're built on shared interests, uh, mutual obligation. Uh, and usually they, they thrive on uh, many things like cooperations or, or friendship. And, and you can analyze uh, the culture of the companies you're investing in or your own culture with different uh, tools. I think there is one I really like which is the um, um, one that is provided by the Harvard Business Review, uh, where uh, they measure uh, the culture of companies according to two axes, and it's uh, on one, sociability, and the, on the other, solidarity. Uh, so um, sociability is a me measure of friendliness among the members of the community. And solidarity is more about uh, the ability to pursue shared objectives, regardless of personal ties. Um, none of the positioning is best, so you can position yourself along those axes. Uh, but certainly, there are positive and negatives depending on the on, on the business you're you're carrying out. So, for example, uh, if I do that with Comgest, I think we were totally born as a, a fully social so, social organization, a very network organization with a lack of hierarchy. People recruited by cooperation, artisan mindset, um, a lot of enjoyment to work together. Uh, but also, uh, the flip side of that is m maybe a bit too too much tolerant to poor performance. Um, maybe uh, the risk of creating uh, um, clans, you know, within company. But we, as it's our own money that is at stake, we've always avoided uh, to, to 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 go on that way. And the way we've tried to we've make our company evolve is from this social full full on social uh, positioning to a more um, more solidarity, meaning being more knowledgeable about what our key uh, decisions uh, are um, made of, um, knowing more about the, sh the shared belief and the, sh the shared goals, and trying to put everything in common, so creating ties between the different activities uh, of Comgest. I think we've been on, on this way from a, a, what I would call a, a network organization to a, a communal organization. Uh, that means an organization with still a good level of sociality, but clearer purpose, more explicit values, maybe, um, hiring more expertise and less artisan, of course. So uh, the funny thing uh, about this Harvard Review article is that most successful communal companies uh, are usually a religious or a volunteers group. <laughs> Which means they have the, the, they have very strong belief and they share those beliefs and they have a great social life as well. Um, so we are not a sect, <laughs> uh, but uh, certainly we, we, we have plenty of things that look like a religious organization, like, um, as I said, Tuesday meeting is like uh, the mass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to a company month. church. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, when we analyze uh, the, the business of the company and we look at the culture, the culture is an enabler. And we're trying to make sure that um, uh, there is a, a fitness to purpose. So that the, the the culture of the company is well fit to the purpose of the company. So uh, if you're a 
fast-moving company in a fast-moving environment where you need to be first. Uh, you need to have a, a, a very um, a clear goal that you share and, of course, a far more mercenary type of environment. So we'd say it's far more um, purpose-driven uh, than social. Uh, on the contrary, oh, when you're long-term, when you are um, trying to foster more creativity, um, you're, you want to take more long-term risks together, then you have to, to be more collegial and more social. So that's that's a way, for example, that uh, that's a tool that we're using to appraise uh, the quality of the culture and the quality of the companies we're investing in. And of course, at the end, there is also about uh, the way you interact with the people, because in the end, you, I mean, business is about trusting people. Uh, and it's about observing if those people are trustworthy. So that means, do they, uh, how do you say, walk the walk or talk the talk or talk the walk, I can't remember. But <laughs> uh, that's, that's about making sure over time um, what they do is what they say. And what they say is what they do. Yeah, that I makes might sense. also just add into that. I think it's a, it's a really important point. Like we spend so much of our days analyzing quality companies and uh, it's always been drilled into me that it's super important that our company, our partnership also reflects a lot of those same um, mechanisms or culture and so on. So one of the things that we aim for when we invest in companies is sustainability. And you look at the industry and quite often you get this star fund manager approach at Comgest, it's all about the team-based approach. We are one investment team. We have one investment philosophy. That's what we've been doing for over 30 years. Um, and when you think about that, by having a team-based approach, you're never beholden to just one opinion or one person holding power. You're very much uh, incentivized to have a culture where you're just exchanging insight, trying to get to the right answer. And in that way, it's kind of funny to say, but you know, if I was to get hit by a bus tomorrow, the team would continue going on. The research would be very um, consistent. They're all very well, well aware of my views. We know the regional views as well. Um, it is not beholden to one single person. We wanted to have sustainability so that our partners will get the same sustainability, the same DNA, not over just one year or three years, but over 10, 20, 30 years and so on. Yeah. The question that's coming up for me is you said, Rick, you know, we spend so much time uh, analyzing quality companies you know, I look at I looked at uh, one of your portfolios today. It, it holds uh, ASML and ADN, and uh, you know, I, I, how how do you think through uh, the the differences? Like um, culture is so soft; it's not tangible, right? So, how do you decipher between? Uh, quality um like you're you're looking at the highest quality stuff right so how do you how do you handicap quality um and how does culture come into that so so we we are quality growth investors meaning we are looking for growth but not at any level of quality uh we're looking for sustainable growth meaning uh growth that can be maintained over time and our investment horizon is five years but usually it's five to ten years uh, which is um, we, we need to be very humble. It's very difficult to to, to predict. Um, so coming back to your question, that means that um, we're looking at anything that can reinforce um, our uh, knowledge about the, the sustainability of a company. And of course, uh, while you were talking about ESML, ADN, uh, which are very innovation-driven companies, technology companies. It's very important in, in this case to uh, focus uh, our research effort on understanding uh, the culture of innovation within the company. And it's the culture of innovation usually is driven mostly by HR, 
and loosely by the the, the initiative uh, to build the company around agile uh, type of uh, way to work together. Um, for example, um, there is a tech technological co company we've been investing in for many years, for 20 years. They have this um, rotation of uh, one third of their staff job every three years. That is forced. That's an example to that. Anybody that stay in, in a job for more than two to three years will rotate uh, to another hmm. job. Uh, and that's what forced them to keep them agile. So we spent some time with ASML and ADN to try to better understand what makes um, those companies uh, different uh, in terms of the way they manage uh, their, their business and the way they, they're organized. Um, in the case of ADN, clearly there is um, something very, very original about the company in terms of uh, the way they they encourage entrepreneurship through many many different mechanisms. I'm not going to go into details, but uh, that's that's the way they they do. ASML is, is is a different story because the way they invest, uh, you know, ASML is the market leader in um, lithography. Uh, lithography is the, the ability to print uh, circuits on on a wafer, you know, for semiconductors, um, and usually their technology take something like 10 to 15 years at least to, to develop. So the first time we visited the company was in 2005. They were already talking about um, a new product that they just launched two or three years ago, which is called the EUV or Extreme, Extreme Ultraviolet. Um, and it's the only company owning uh, having this technology. So it's a monopoly in this. So they're the only one with a leading edge in terms of uh, printing uh, semi-design uh, onto a ship um, and it's it's more about the longevity and the dura durability of um, the, the, their investment the consistency so they need to keep people as long as possible in that job because they can capitalize on years of, uh, of, of, of um, expertise that's more about that that's hmm. another example so each time it's a different story uh, ADN is more payment so it's more you need to be very quick very entrepreneur very agile uh, ASML is more like 20 years to develop a product uh, with with a great competitive advantage. I mean, if you look at the their EUV machine, uh, which sells for 200 billion uh, euro, it has a lot of unique attributes. Uh, for example, um, the laser is so precise that you can shoot an, 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 on on the moon an, an apple from from Earth. So that's an example. Uh, or are there uh, their the lens uh, is so smooth, so they use a lens and a laser to print the, the circuit, that it, if you spread it over the surface of uh, the U US territory, the biggest bump would be as thick as air, as the hair. Wow. So, yeah. So that's extremely advanced, extremely precise. And, and, and so it requires different type of um, approach to innovation, those two cases. So, you know, I, I grew up, I don't know how, I'd be very interested and curious how, how both of you grew up investing. But, you know, I, I read, my, I had a grandma who, uh, her, her, well, I still have the grandma, but her friend sent me uh, two Bogle books. And then in between the Bogle books, he squeezed the intelligent investor. And I'm convinced he had a sixth sense of humor uh, <laughs> because I could have just indexed and been naive and been, uh, you know, happy or whatever. But uh, you know, the intelligent investor grabbed me and then that led me to value. And I look at your portfolio and I would say it trades at what I would say are optically healthy multiples uh, that relative to, you know, the entire market. 
But uh, I, I think a lot of that is justified. And, and over, I've, you know, over time, I've grown to appreciate that uh, these multiples are justified. So I, I'm curious, you know, you're, you're buying into the fund with your own money, as you said. How do you think about the valuation of something? And I, I don't mean ASML, but the portfolio as a whole, um, you know, and, and where valuation risk may, may play into your strategy. Valuation plays a role, but it's always secondary. Quality is the most important thing. Quality is about sustainability. So it deals with the ability of a company to price their innovation, their IP, their marketing, it's their strategy of development. Um, what distinguishes us from maybe uh, any other people on the market is that we are looking at valuation more as a moving target, so a movie, a film, as opposed to a photo. So you would find a lot of uh, value investors saying, well, I am 20% below my intrinsic value, so I will buy. Um, but if you invest in a company that's growing earning on a recurring basis by, let's say, 10% per annum, your valuation will move forward, uh, if everything being equal, of course. Um, so usually there is a translation of these gross prospects that takes place from one year to the next, uh, unless you anticipate a limit to this. Uh, and so as we are looking at the movie, um, not the photo, because we're constantly looking into where the company invests, what their next product is, that means we are more um, valuation tolerant. We, are, we, we have a buy and hold investment philosophy, and we're only investing outside of a very specific range. Um, and so the way we are looking at valuation is uh, usually we're looking at um, how many uh, of a, a future year of growth we're going to pay for, for this company. Uh, so it's all a matter of time horizon in the end. So it's all a matter of humility. How much are you ready to look into a story and believe you, you're able to predict the future? Um, so uh, for us, it's five years. But um, usually, I mean, with hindsight, it's easy. But uh, when you invest in a great company, um, you never remember the, the price you paid for it. Give, let me give you, give, give you an example, typical example. Uh, it's in the paper you've been talking to me about. Uh, it's a, a company I've been covering since 1996, which is a world leader in uh, computer-aided design and computer-aided computer uh, manufacturing uh, software. It's called Dassault System. Uh, it is uh, helping um, aerospace company and the auto company with designing their cars and their planes and their engines, etc. Uh, it's a company we've been uh, have been there at the IPO in 1996. Uh, we've invested in 1987. It's great competitive advantage, twice uh, market share of its uh, number two uh, competitor at that time. Uh, it's um, company has been delivering a fantastic track record over the, the next almost 30 years, actually, around 14, 15% per annum uh, of, of gross in earnings. In 1999, 2000, you remember TMT bubble, uh, all tech stocks price at crazy multiples. We exited in November 1999 at 60, 70 times because we said, well, 60, 70 times is what it's worth for the next five years, but not beyond. Hmm. Uh, it went to 105 times. And we had to wait um, another three or four years to be able to buy back again. And we, it's a position we've been keeping in a portfolio in a couple of portfolio of our clients for 23 years out of the last uh, 27. Um, but actually, if you had been a dumb investor investing in uh, March 2000 at 105 times earnings, uh, 23 years later, uh, you would do twice the return of the European index, still uh, 6 to 7% as against 3 3.5%. So 
uh, well, but we, we're not pretending we know what's going to happen in 20 years. <laughs> uh, yeah. We limit ourselves to five, if possible, a bit more. Uh, and that's the, it's more about the longevity, the durability, what we can see to the future that will um, decide what multiple we're ready to pay for that. So the competitive advantage period somehow in a, in a way we met. Rick, I'm sure you, you're, you're dying to say something about that because you're, you're faced with that on a global basis. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting point. Um, you know, if I rewind back 20 years ago, so I was living in Australia at one of my first roles, and we did um, that very exercise of extremely detailed um, valuation models. Uh, they would sometimes be 40 year, years out into the future, incredibly intricate, fully reconciling, like all the bells and whistles. And the one thing you could be sure of is that whatever number you came up with, it was going to be wrong. But the beauty behind that process yeah. is that you look at DCF, and so one of the things that we, we try to do at Comgest is go deeper um, when it comes to research. And I may not believe that when I come to an intrinsic value that that is you know, the absolute holy number that we're aiming for, but by going through that process, by exploring my P&L, my revenue drivers and so on, and really having an eye into understanding what does this look like on a go forward basis? What are the quality drivers which ensure that my returns are held in place and so on? It forces you to go through this process of really understanding what are my key valuation drivers. So for me, like with many things, getting back to basics, just really understanding the foundations behind what drives valuation, that's more important than actually the number that I come up with. Um, so that would be the first point. And then certainly, um, as Arno said, he's absolutely right. Like um, at the global scale, um, you know, valuation is very important. Oh, it's very important for all of us. But um, what we do is a competition for capital. So we essentially have 30 to 40 of the best quality growth companies in the entire world on our portfolio. We also have a buy list. So typically there's about 90 names on the buy list where we say these are some of the best uh, quality and growth companies, business models, industries, and so on that we like to follow, but the valuation isn't quite right yet. And every name that we follow, whether it's on the portfolio or not, it represents a company that we would like to invest in at the right price. So you constantly have this interaction every day where it's like, well, I have super high quality, super high growth, um, and maybe the valuation isn't fantastic, but if something is on that buy list and I see that valuation come back, my competition for capital dynamics says, well, maybe I should be reallocating from one to the other. Um, so valuation is quite important from that perspective. But as Arno said, valuation, it's a necessary but not sufficient in itself condition. We need to have the quality. We need to have the growth in order to have conviction in that valuation exercise. I may add, I may add something. It's a price of scarcity as well. Uh, we are looking for companies that are able to sustain double-digit growth in earnings for the next uh, five years or an extended period of time. Uh, it's very scarce. Uh, there are not that many companies that that um, can can do that with a sufficient level of visibility or sustainability. So I would say when we find one, our most favorite or time horizon is uh, forever. <laughs> um, if you have a great stock and you exit just because of a value reason, placing the proceed in secondary level of quality type of companies, uh, there is always an opportunity cost. Um, and our founder, uh, who is a German, as I said, always had a German sentence for this. He said, Billish ist teuer. Uh, 
So I'm using my best German. That means what is cheap can be very costly. Uh, and indeed, if you're selling mm. a great company because it's reached too high a price, if you reinvest into a lower quality companies, it can be a value trap as well. Uh, so you, you need to be pretty good at, uh, at this. Um, so what we do is we, as I said, we, we let our winners run up until the point where it's too, too, too much too early. Uh, that's it. <laughs> Arno reminds us, what are the longest held stocks on the European portfolio? There's some pretty good ones in terms of how well they've comp compounded over a long amount of time. Yes, uh, suddenly a company like L'Oréal, for example, which is a world le leading company in cosmetic. Uh, I think we invested in 1991. I think at that time we paid 22 times earnings. And actually we did the, what Warren Buffett uh, did with Coca-Cola. He, he, he computed backwards to 1918, uh, which was the IPO of Coca-Cola, what price he could have paid for Coca-Cola and still get the return of the US market over the next century. So Coca-Cola is, is, is a stock that's delivered 10% uh, compound annual growth in the, in the, in the next century. And it's, it's I think, calculated 6,000 times earnings. Um, so, so, of course, the odds of finding a Coca-Cola in, in, in 1918 are, are pretty low, but let's say that's a funny, a funny exercise. Uh, for L'Oreal, we did the same exercise, and I think it was more than 100 times, for sure. I noticed that you said 20% of the stocks have driven 80% of the performance. Um, and it seems like there's uh, a core group of companies that maybe uh, underperform your uh, your investment expectations. And those get churned out fairly quickly. I think it was like 1.7 years or something around there. But the ones that you own, you really stick with. Um, how do you hold a company that you're riding the wave of, but you know the valuation is stretched. I, I think what what I have found uh, from from studying you and talking to other people is what what you may not want to buy can still make some sense to hold if that makes any sense. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yes, we 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 have not invested in many stocks actually in in the last 25 years we invested in 150 stocks also, uh, and yes, that's true. Uh, there is a, it might not be 2080, but might be 30, 70 or something like that. Suddenly, the one we keep for five or 10 or 15 years have done most of the, of, the, of the performance. And of course, there is a risk of selling too early because we are relying on two things uh, to create value for our clients. The first one is a time horizon arbitrage, meaning we, we take advantage of short-term market efficiency to build long-term positions. That's maybe an easy part. You need to be very patient at that because sometimes uh, you need to wait for years. And the second one is compounding. And, and if you all really want to have compounding at work and the best possible outcome of, of compounding is you, you need to make sure that you keep uh, a good company for very, very long. Um, so the way we, we, we're building that is, let's say we have a position neutral in terms of valuation at 5% of the portfolio. Well, we figure out that maybe um, one third of that is for the next uh, three, four years, one third will be for the next five, six, seven years, and one third would be for beyond. So let's say um, when uh, a stock reaches, so we've been faced with a lot of uh, stocks going up and down, especially in the last three or four years. Um, let's take a good example, Strowman, which is a world leading company in dental implants. It's a Swiss company. Uh, it went uh, from um, what is typical 30, 35 times earnings for a company that's growing earnings by 15% per annum quite consistently over the last uh, 20 years 
uh, to um, something like 60, 70 times. And what used to be a three or four person position became a one or two person position. If it had gone beyond 60, 70, we would have sold totally. So let's say there is part of this position that is for the next one or two years, three years, and then one for beyond and one for beyond. You know, So yeah. that's basically, I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a very simple story here. It's not exactly like this, but it's, so we, for, for each company, we have a TSR, uh, which is an absolute return uh, objective. Uh, that we contrast with the risk we're taking. Uh, and if it's uh, far above the risk uh, level, let's say uh, um, a risk-free rate plus risk premium is a uh, 6-7% and you are at 14 or 15, you have a, f a big position in your portfolio. And if it's uh, uh, 0 to 7%, it's going to be a minimal position. If it becomes negative, it's going to get out of the portfolio. Rick, do you have anything to add? Um, no is yeah. fine. I'm just curious. <laughs> I do. Uh, um, so if we rewind back to um, one of the questions you asked earlier about quality. Um, so I would say, you know, you can generally, and I'm being very general here, but you can break it down into industry. The industry structure is very good. The business model, um, there's something special about that business model. So take like a Costco where um, you just have a very sticky membership fee behind it. The industry's not fantastic, but because of that stickiness, they continue to deliver high quality outcomes. Um, you have the product, uh, which might be the driver of the quality behind that. So ASML is a good example of that. And then you have the absence of value destructive activities. Now you take all of those things and you consider that, well, we're only investing in 30 to 40 stocks. The beauty behind that is that you can then find companies that quite often have more than one quality driver. It's culmination of industry, it being a standard, a subscription business model, a very good management team and so on. So Microsoft, it's a, it's a well-known name, but that's a company that ascribes to that. We've held that since 2008. Um, and then we return to a, a second question that you also asked about culture. And you go, here's a company that is, you know, essentially you could view it as infrastructure. You need it to operate uh, as an enterprise. It's got strong network effects behind it and so on. But if you have the right culture, the right leader behind it, your ability to ride these secular tailwinds, the second part of our investment philosophy, um, if you're able to ride those tailwinds and return it back as Sachin Nadella did back to being a developer and engineering uh, driven company, then you get to a point where you can compound on all of these quality characteristics, but open it up to new terms. We've seen that in tech, we've seen that in pharma and so on, but it kind of gets back to that point of, you can end up with a company that might have looked full value 15 years ago, but because these TAMs are so big and the culture might allow them to really um, exploit those TAMs and so on, your fair value continues to compound upwards in the right circumstances. So it really does speak to the, the long-term nature of the sort of companies we're looking at. How do you all think about, um, you know, looking through a recession and whether or not some of the financial statements and some of these higher quality companies, uh, Microsoft specifically, right, benefited from a ton of operating leverage uh, in 2020 and 2021. Now, maybe we're seeing they, I don't know if they overhired or attrition just wasn't at natural levels, whatever, whatever the story really is. Uh, they seem to be cutting back on cost growth at a minimum. Uh, how do you think through like what recessions do to quality companies versus uh, the market in general, or or do you not even really think that way? I'm just kind of curious to hear your, you know, thoughts on investing through recessions and being long term oriented 
in this basket of securities? Um, I'll kick off, and I know, please feel free to keep me honest, but, you know, it's almost counterintuitive, but recessions are great from an investing perspective. Um, when you think about the investment philosophy that we practice, a lot of the valuation upside comes from your long-term outcomes. That's where we're really focused on. In a recession, you know, whether it was a tech crash, whether it was a GFC, quite often what you find is these companies that we've followed for, you know, sometimes decades at a time, you know, they're great quality, you know, you want to buy them at the right price, you finally get to have that opportunity where you buy into them. So a name like HDFC in India, um, that's a name that we invest in, but here's a name that was first covered at Comgest in 2009. It made its way onto the global universe, our buy list in 2014. We watched this company while it was invested on the India regional portfolio, but we got to meet with the management team. We saw them through all sorts of economic conditions, high interest rates, low interest rates, different competitive environments, going through systematic risk and so on. And the company continued to deliver through and throughout. So we get to a period in 2020 where everything's selling off. Um, this returns back to global financial crisis trough multiples, and we have that conviction. We have good access to management because we've had that candid relationship with them for a very long amount of time. In the space of one week, well, it seems like in the space of one week, but we're able to retouch base with the management team, initiate a position there. And it seems like there was this one-week period where um, you know, we were able to get that. But the reality was it was conviction-driven over decades uh, of time. So that's how we look well, on the global team. We look at recessions as usually a buying opportunity. And then when it comes to the actual specific companies, it really is a case-by-case -case basis. So Microsoft, as you say, um, yes, have had to um, you know, uh, let go of some workers. That's not always great. It comes with a um, um, you know, a charge off and so on. But at the same time, the company is still very resilient. Um, you look at the growth outcomes. Uh, we had this conversation on Team Global just last week, but, you know, we went around the table and we said, if anyone thinks we are at the tail end or the maturity of cloud as an opportunity, please put your hand up. And no surprise, but we all feel like it's still a very early days there. Um, the traditional business, it's subscription driven. So yes, they are exposed to the economy. They will see some impact from a recession, but at the same time, this is mission critical stuff. Uh, you have a subscription model, which you pay for once a year. It's a lot more palatable uh, compared to many other names across the universe. And then finally, like letting go of workers, it's not a great situation, but at the same time, it shows that management are concerned about earnings. They want to make sure that it's right size for the conditions at this point in time, whilst not letting go of the future opportunity as well. So for us, it's an opportunity. And then we bring it back to looking at how each and every one of the businesses on the portfolio are going to operate in that environment. Yeah, and, th and then quality means uh, resilience. And uh, it means resilience because usually we invest in companies that more depend on their own forces to develop than on the economy in general. Uh, so if you look at, for example, 2008, 2009, which was a great financial crisis, world GDP down four or five percent. Um, company like Coloplast, uh, which is a world leader in uh, Intimate healthcare, so it's um, ostomy, uh, urology, we're, st we're still growing at uh, 4 or 5% organically. That's an example of a company that is very resilient because they're building their own growth with you know, innovation because their clients are not too dependent on the economy in general. Uh, 
And it's what I call idiosyncratic stories in the end. But also because uh, usually when the going gets tough, uh, the tough get going. And if you look at, um, for example, a company like Inditex, it's a, uh, what, one of the world leading companies in textile retail uh, with the brands like Zara. I mean, in 2008, 2009, they suffered. I mean, uh, they had flat sales, but all their competitors were minus 10, minus 20%. And they took a lot of market shares in, the, in, in that year uh, because most of their competitors are small moms and pop shops that suffered like crazy when they had the, enough uh, strength in terms of innovation, in terms of financial strength to, to resist. So I would say there's two things that are at work in, in, in the recession. It, on the one hand, the differentiation that is very clear between uh, the company reinvesting, high quality companies as against uh, typically companies with no pricing power, uh, cyclical sectors uh, or the zero cash flow sectors, for example, and there are a lot at the moment. Um, and the company reinvesting in, and, and also in terms of the ability in those moments, in those tough moments to take advantage of uh, the weakness of their competitors. Um, certainly, uh, and, and I mean, I could give you a hundred examples of that because uh, we've been in, in a recession every 10 years, basically. I mean, if you look at uh, Europe, uh, we had the crisis in 2008-2009, we had the Euro crisis in 2011-2013, uh, we had the um, 19th recession in the early 90s. If you look at the US, it's the same. Uh, if you look at globally, there is one recession every 10 years. So I think we, we have, with a 34 years track record on Europe and more than 30 years track record on most geographies, we have enough uh, data and enough um, situations to be pretty good at uh, illustrating and anticipating what's going to happen. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, historically, our recession has been quite good for the investment style. And when you think about it, you know, highly visible, typically agnostic to the economy type companies, typically in a net debt um, negative position. So they carry cash on their balance sheet. Um, these are the companies that stand to tend to stand the test of time. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that maybe the current results are not ideal, but coming out of the back end of it, they're probably going to be stronger than they would have been otherwise. Uh it seems to me, at least, I don't know. Um, you know, the other the other hot topic of the day is inflation. How does how does inflation run through uh, some of these quality companies, and and or maybe said differently, are they uniquely positioned to uh, you know uh, absorb the impact of inflation and protect their earnings power? Yes. So so inflation is a kind of a <laughs> two edged sword, let's say. Um, because of course, uh, especially we've been through uh, 40 years of disinflation. Uh, of course, in the last 30 years of uh, track records, uh, we went through a few phases where inflation reappeared. Uh, from about 2005, it was 4%. Uh, in 2007, it was also 5%. But it never went far above um, 5%. So being faced with 9% suddenly is um, quite a big uh, new thing. Uh, but it's, it's anyway very rare in the history of, uh, if you look at the, 19th, uh, the 20th century or the 19th century, I mean, inflation exceeding 5% has only happened uh, three or four, four times, I think just after the wars, 1918, uh, 1945, 1950, because of the Korean War, and the 70s, which was plenty of different things, but also after the Vietnam War. <laughs> so, um, and now we are after the COVID war, and there again, and the Ukraine war is, uh, is hurting as well, we have a uh, high high inflation. How do we deal with that? And what, what's our take from uh, 50 years of uh, quality growth history? So we have 30 years 
experience and we know what happened to quality growth stocks in the 1970s as well, which was the last big, big, big spike in inflation. Usually, uh, quality growth stocks go through three phases. The first phase um, is exactly what happened between end 2021 and um, sorry, end 2020 and uh, early 2022, so 18 months. It's when suddenly uh, there is a normalization uh, in the environment out of the COVID phase, and suddenly there is revenge buying, re revenge traveling. Um, there is a, a lot of problems to restart the, the production chain and a lot of demand for plenty of things. And there is a spike in inflation, which gives back a lot of pricing power to a lot of sectors that usually don't have pricing power, typically banks, mining companies, energy companies. And of course, that's not a cup of tea. That's not the type of uh, company we're investing in because we're investing in quality company. We're, in, we're looking for sustainable companies, meaning um, strong pricing power in a recurring way, in a chronic way. Uh, and so uh, suddenly, we are usually left behind. And that's what happens every time there was a revival in inflation. Uh, the second phase is when inflation starts to be a cost for all uh, companies, all businesses. And there, exactly as you, as you, you, you asked me, me what, what is the difference? Well, the difference is some companies are able to pass on their, the cost to their clients and some can't because they lack pricing power in a chronic way. And that's where we differentiate because one of the great marker of quality is uh, pricing power. That means the ability to fix pricing in, in, in your market. And what we've seen last year and early this year is that a lot of companies in our portfolio have managed to pass on all the costs uh, increase to their clients. And if you look, for example, at our European portfolio, uh, the company in the, in the European portfolio have suffered very mild margin erosion, operating margin, so very mild profit erosion due to the inflation, whereas the market has, has suffered much more. So the ability to uh, price um, and if you look at uh, Louis Vuitton, well, that's a luxury good company. Twice they increased their prices last year. L'Oréal, cosmetic company, world leading company, 5% increase in, in, in prices last year. Uh, and all the construction sector companies in our portfolio, the companies like Asabloy, like Kingspan, like um, Sika, they've passed on anything, uh, price increase of between 10 and 25% without suffering any uh, contraction in volumes. So that's so that it's a good marker of quality. It's a good marker of pricing power uh, because on the one hand they pass on this, their, their pricing, and on the other hand they don't suffer from from um, uh, price elasticity, so no Im negative impact on volume. And of course the next phase of inflation is when suddenly the central banks are trying to act, trying to um, put some water on the on the fire by increasing interest rates, and that's where um, the different market actors start anticipating the next recession and that's where autonomous growth, quality growth, sustainable growth is really a differentiator. So I think we suffered quite substantially in 2021, uh, especially 2022, sorry, from the sector rotations, from uh, uh, the markets were mostly led worldwide by energy, banks and mining. Uh, in this uh, cyclical rotation typical of um, what happens uh, from time to time. Uh, I think uh, we've seen in the end of 2022 and early 2023 far more focus on, on quality. Quality because of the ability to price products and to escape from uh, cost inflation uh, and quality as a way to make sure we still grow in the next recession.
I think that's very productive. I think the global portfolio um, that is managed by Rick has also um, benefited a lot from um, the quality names uh, that it contains, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I don't have too much to add to that, but pricing uh, power certainly is very important. Um, we typically look at pricing power across, you know, the ability just to give a straight up price without the volume impact, like the luxury names that um, Anna was talking to. Sometimes the, the names like um, in China, we used to have Kuaizhou Muay Thai. Um, so again, very high operating margins, very resilient revenue growth, and typically not too much elasticity when it comes to these dynamics. Other times we also have names where um, pricing power comes from innovation. So uh, on the European and the global portfolios, we have names like Novo Nordisk or Eli Lilly, um, again, being idiosyncratic. Uh, one of the latest innovations there is that um, they've developed uh, obesity drugs, allowing people to lose you know, around 15% of their body weight if they are in the obese category. Uh, so from that perspective, you've got this great innovation. You have a company that has a history of being able to develop such amazing drugs. Um, and yet they're able to get increases in average pricing just by having that innovation layer, a new product that improves the mix of their products and so on. So yeah, it's quite multifaceted, um, but certainly something that we look for in a, an inflationary environment. When you're thinking about, um, you know, I guess these quality growth companies, there's a, a part of my head that says, well, they can't outgrow GDP forever, right? Otherwise they would become GDP. Uh, like what uh when do you find is typically the time to sort of get off a train uh you know that's that's a question i often find myself wondering yeah that's a very good question we need to be um very expert at this we need to be able to position uh the product of a company along a, a maturity curve typically a s curve um and any company goes through that any product goes through that uh, they start with a small product that is not uh, proven, not tested, not well adapted, and then they go through an adoption phase and an acceleration phase, and then then suddenly they entered into this uh, acceleration phase, where the the, the 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 part of the curve is steeper uh, and the VIPT is higher, and that's where we're trying to position ourselves, and then they mature gently, and then they ex I mean, and so. A big part of what we do is try to see how many S curves there are in a company. In a company, big, um, so and how what is the ability of the management to take cash away from what has become a sacred cow? You know, the successful products that has built a company, for example, to reinvest into a new S curve and keep the ball rolling for it forever if possible um, of course it's never forever as you rightly said i mean unless you can show me a company that has um, i mean i was talking about coca-cola in mean, the one century that's not too bad um, but it's a, a multi so we're looking at multiplicity of s curve to keep the ball rolling the, the the big problem is of course at some point in time those companies get so big that uh, there is a low of big number and it's very difficult to invent something that is bigger that, than what they have. Uh, but I mean, so far, so 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 good. I mean, we we have a lot of examples of companies that are continuing on this path. I mean, Apple is a good example of that. But in France, we have a LVMH. I mean, LVMH just reported the, the numbers yesterday. They went from 69 billion revenue to 70. I think it was up 20 25 percent last year. So just crazy. I mean, they created billions in in one year. Just by development in the luxury goods segment, uh, also by a few consolidation and a few acquisitions. So um, 
repositioning of the company along those different S-curves, uh, taking advantage of entry into adjacent market, markets by acquisitions, for example, through consolidation, are things that can keep the ball rolling for quite a while. But we need to be good at also exiting. And uh, I mean, we've published also an another article called uh, um, When Growth Stalls. And the way we're handling that is by trying to um, anticipate uh, when the growth stalls through um, what we call red flags, where those red flags, after one after the other, show a pattern of um, slowdown. Uh, and it has happened to us. I mean, there is a, a good example of a company like Tesco, for example, which is a, a UK retailer who went into a phase of fast growth acceleration throughout the late 90s, uh, sorry, the 2000, a bit the 2010. Uh, but at some point in time, uh, they went into a, a wall, a maturity wall. And the way we managed to anticipate that on time was to uh, put focus on many, many different things. Uh, and usually it's typical. Usually the, the company uh, starts losing momentum, starts losing market shares. Then uh, typically um, the, there are changes in the management. Then typically uh, they're trying to be a bit more defensive in their communication. Then typically um, they try to um, massage their, their accounts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you, we we know we've been mm. through. I mean, in in Europe, uh, out of the 150 companies we've been investing in the last uh, 25 years, there may be um, 15, 20 that went through this typical process, and we we've analyzed that in detail through post mortem anal analysis, and we've tried to understand better how to anticipate that in in the future. So management of transition um, is very important for us, of course. Yeah, because, I mean, when that happens, the uh, the multiples contract and yep. uh, it's not a fun process. So we need to be good at exiting on time, um, but we need to be good at uh, making making sure we don't mix what is a temporary slowdown with a definitive slowdown. And that's that's the science of it. <laughs> Yeah, and I would think that's that's not easy uh, through COVID, right? There's been a lot of pull forwards and trying to figure out whether or not you should look at one year stacks, two year stacks, three year stacks. It's uh, it's been an interesting time to analyze what's going on in the world. Uh, all, all crises are extremely interesting uh, to measure the quality of the companies and the longevity and the way that they can react to this. Uh, but certainly, it also make uh, send a lot of noise, and it's difficult to to know if it's a signal or noise, you know, or a signal, uh, you know, uh, and, and that's all uh, what we are about. And the way we, we're dealing with that is to get as many information as we can. So by going on the ground, doing our research, meeting with uh, companies, meeting with our competitors, um, meeting with our clients, going to trade shows and trying to get as many feedback as possible on what is truly the, the situation. Uh, and yeah, uh, and sometimes it's no, not, not bulletproof, but we're doing our best. Yeah, yeah, at the extreme, I would say. Um, you also have the situation where you know we're quite focused on the quality drivers behind a company. Um, so usually it's quite a slow process where we um, might see a maturation of that growth profile that Arno was describing. But if for whatever reason we were to find a situation where the key driver behind the quality of the company. Maybe it's the industry structure and then you get regulation uh, or a new competitor coming in or innovation or something. If there was something that would actually impair one of those quality drivers, 
you could see his exit quite quickly because for us, that's when the thesis breaks. Um, we've talked about the idea about focusing on the competitive advantage period. Evaluation matters insofar as you have the quality to back it up. But if that quality factor disappears due to some development or better information that we're aware of and so on, that might actually catalyze us exiting the position as we reassess the facts behind it. How does geopolitics uh, play into whether or not factors have are, are changing and and I think the question that I'm really asking is like the, the concept of deglobalization is so big uh, and seems to have such a prevalence like how do you think through can a company um, you know manage this risk and and how is that going to impact growth like how, how um have you thought about that over the past few years usually when we're looking at um, uh, a I mean, macro, micro, or um, uh, geopolitical developments, we're looking at the company level. Uh, but uh, we need to be knowledgeable about what's going on. Uh, if we're talking about deglobalization, uh, too, I mean, we are in a multipolar world more and more. We are, we are faced with um, a lot of um, economic blocks trying to regain sovereignty over various uh, sectors and various industries. Uh, so it's, it's more of a top-down thing. Uh, we don't see that for luxury goods, for example, but we see that for semiconductors, for electric vehicles, for everything that is linked to the, the ecological transition as well. Um, and yes, it impacts us, and we need to take into account what are the key risks behind, especially if it's a mid to long term uh, impact. So, uh, one of the key exposure here uh, about the globalization for us is more the semiconductor industry. Uh, which is at the center of many things in our lives, of course, uh, which is one of the most globalized supply chain uh, due to the, the fragmentation of the specialization model. Um, and it's a good mirror of globalization and deglobalization. And it's pretty big in our portfolio because uh, I think in uh, our Japanese equity stocks, we have like, in the portfolio, we have like six stocks. Um, there are like three stocks in the global portfolio. We have one of the biggest position in the European portfolio that is called ASML. Uh, we talked about it. So it's very key. I mean, and globalization of this has enabled a lot of progress, actually. Uh, you know, the, the Moore law, which is um, the ability to print uh, twice as many circuits on the same wafer every two years and make speed increase by 30% or uh, power consumption reduced by 45% every two years, uh, is, has, has been very much driven by globalization. So the question is now that uh, this change, how does it impact our companies? And we're going into that in, in, in details. Um, of course, uh, we're looking at the CHIPS Act in, in the US. We're looking at the boycott of um, um, Japanese, European, and US companies on, on, on China, and what the impact uh, on, on this company. If I'm looking at a company like ASML, for example, uh, I would say it's a positive. Uh, it's a positive because uh, ASML is selling uh, equipment to build and to produce um, uh, to, to, to produce semiconductors. So if every economic blocks try to repatriate in-house most of their production, they need more of these machines. So it's been a growth driver for for ASML, even if China is uh, um, they are barred from selling in China nowadays. For us, in our, in our calculation, it's, it's it's a positive. Uh, so, if, for the rest, we're looking at case by case, uh, does it impact or not uh, the companies? There is not one, one size fits all, I'm sorry, I won't be able to answer more broadly about, about yeah. this. Uh, and then, of course, there is a mid to long term impact 
uh, that um, it has on the economy. And of course, when you look at um, such um, changes like uh, that are fueled by the Inflation Reduction Act in the US or the CHIP Act in the US, uh, it has a huge long-term impact. Um, in two sense, the first thing, I, th I think it's a bit more costly and a bit more inflationary. Why? Because uh, rebuilding from scratch a whole chain it entails a lot of investment. And, and here, I think, in uh, when we're looking at the green energy or the, the battery industry, we're talking about uh, a few trillions of, of dollars uh, investment, um, according to some economists. If you're looking at the um, the, the cheap production, um, I think there is there was research by the Boston Consultant Group that said that it's one one trillion at least to to create uh, multiple self-sufficient semiconductor uh, supply chain around the world. So it, it will not come easy, <laughs> for sure. I mean, this change, it's, it's going to take a lot of time. And in the end, it might be a bit more inflationary because uh, in the end, it's a bit protectionist uh, as against uh, what it was before. Uh, but time will tell. Uh, does it impact uh, us uh, in terms of... Uh, Inflation aggregates, uh, not not really. I think it just may prove that uh, inflation after this uh, year of uh, high inflation of 2022 will land at a level that is not certainly the one of the last 10 years, but rather slightly above. I'm thinking for some reason, I'm thinking of Intel when you're talking about chips. And, you know, here is a stock that trades at... Uh, what appears to be quite a, a bit lower multiple than uh, the rest of the sector, uh, but I made uh, at least the last time I looked, and yet uh, the it seems warranted, right? Uh, every time the results come out, they they are they leave a little bit to be desired. How do you think about staying on on a train like ASML versus you know trading down in quality uh, for a valuation? Uh, I, I know that you don't uh, make that trade. But I'm curious what lessons in your career have sort of informed the decision to not make that trade. Um, as Eric was saying, it's a comp competition for capital. So in the end, um, what if I could I, I would sell ASML to buy Intel? I mean, it's, it's, it's linked to um, my total shareholder return and the visibility I have in the next three to five years. Uh, and then the five to 10 years afterwards, because the multiple I will enjoy in five years will reflect the next five years. Um, and uh, so I'm not, have to, I don't have to have to, to do this trade off. I'm sorry. Rick may be more, <laughs> more exposed. So but I have my view on, on, on a cheap producer because in, in Europe, uh, we have a, a few uh, companies that are printing chips, a company like Infineon. Uh, um, there is also another one, I can't remember one. Uh, and we decided not to go for these companies uh, because they are far more exposed to the semiconductor cycle. They're far more exposed to um, changes in uh, in the economy. And, and as a way to protect the portfolio in terms of quality, we, we prefer to go for structural growth story like ASML. Uh, I guess the choice of uh, the our global team is a bit the same, but um, I, I will let Rick... Uh, and so that one. Yeah, that's yeah, an interesting one. I, I look back over my career. Um, you know, within one year of starting my career, we had the tech crash. Um, and then when I moved to London, we had the GFC. 
Then we moved to Paris. This is my wife and I at this point in time. And then we have the pandemic. So I feel like... Can, uh, you, can you stop moving? Let's just well, keep I'm you where you are. The next time we need to do a super defensive uh, is the next time I move country. So I'll let you all know. When that, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You'll be the leading indicator. <laughs> but that said, like, you know, each one of these um, points in time, I think if I look back at lessons, like it's really interesting because you always get market participants or, you know, parts of the market that will say, hey, let's trade down in terms of quality, let's go cyclical, let's buy energy, let's buy um, companies with poor governance for whatever looks really cheap. And for a while, it looks really appealing. You see them rocketing like energy in the last year. Um, but you really do risk, I think, permanent capital loss. And when you're talking about long-term outperformance, again, going back to our history and the core foundations of Comgest, you want to give consistent returns, sustainability over time. And the moment you start entertaining these things, like you look at maybe maybe Intel, um, it's not a name I, I look at closely, but if you go, actually, it looks really cheap and I'm willing to buy that, but then the whole quality of it falls apart, they never get to the same tech as TSMC, then you're forced to value something that may or may not have a flaw. And then you're forced to take the decision of, do I permanently impair my capital by selling out and recognizing a loss? Whereas if you stay with the quality companies, maybe you get valuation wrong in the short term, but maybe it grows into its valuation. Maybe it becomes cheaper and you want to buy more. You don't have that luxury with these black boxes or these low quality companies. So if I look back at each of those points in time, I'd say it's just better not to entertain because, um, yeah, your potential to get into a bad situation or risk that long-term outperformance, it, it certainly does increase. And your exposure to behavioral mistakes increases when you start looking at that part of the world. I love that answer. I, I have I've noticed from talking to quality investors, um, and, and it resonates when, when I talk to you all, I think it's like the margin of safety is in the quality of the business. And even if, uh, you know, maybe some of the valuation work was a bit aggressive in the beginning, at least you can fall back on a business that you want to own. And that's a little bit, it seems intuitively, it, it's easier to buy into should the stock sell off because you know that the fundamental asset that you're owning should continue to be there in the, in the future, right? Whereas some of the more valuey uh, companies that I've seen uh, or over when I've looked, uh, it's kind of like one of those things. If it's if it sold off fifty percent, I'm not really sure it's that much cheaper. Uh, if that makes any sense, I, I know uh, th that may not that may offend some people to hear, but that's kind of where my mind has gone over over the time of you know talking to people. Yeah, certainly the consistent growth in earnings of the company we're trying to, we we're trying to find the best company in the world. Um, this consistent growth in earnings acts as a coil on um, the, the performance of the shares. Uh, and if the performance is a bit above average, earnings growth will at some point in time compress and then increase, you know, have, act as a decompre decompressing the, the valuation of the, of, of the stock on, on the stock market. So the the main thing we, we have our main focus is to make sure the aggregate uh, 30, 35, 40 companies we're investing in are still delivering uh, double digit gross in earnings uh, every year uh, over time. And this in the end will, will be reflected in, in, in the performance. Uh, that's 
I mean, that's our mantra. I mean, we, we, we believe there is strong convergence building up through times in the long run between underlying growth in rings and uh, performance uh, of a stock or of an aggregate uh, of stocks or a, a portfolio. And, and that's the main guarantee for our clients that um, they will benefit from uh, compounding power uh, and, the perf- and positive performance. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that's a good place to wrap uh, the conversation unless you feel like we, we really missed something. But uh, I have really enjoyed uh, speaking to you all. Uh, I was not familiar with your firm because I'm a little bit American-centric. I apologize. But I, I enjoyed uh, you know reading the letter that you sent over and doing, doing the research on it. And thank you. You know, thank you for joining the show. And, and again, if there's anything that you think I missed or you want to talk about, uh, I'm happy to stay. But uh, I just want to say thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. Great time uh, to, together and, and great questions as well. Uh, thank you again. Yeah, thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. All right. Both of you take care. And, uh, you know, hopefully we talk again sometime. Yeah, with pleasure. Sounds good. Yeah. Absolutely.